Okay, welcome everybody. Um, we, our speaker this afternoon is Julian Yates, who clawed his way up from tiny Oxford University in the far distant island of Britain, all the way to a PhD in English from UCLA in what, 1996? 96, and is now Associate Professor of English at University of Delaware, where he teaches medieval Renaissance literature, uh, literary theory and material culture studies, and he has a vivid and fascinating book called Error, Misuse, Failure, Object Lessons from the English Renaissance that was a finalist for the MLA Best First Book Prize. <clears throat> and he's now working on a project that's tentatively called Renaissance Organics, which already has received a long-term NEH fellowship, a Francis Bacon Foundation Award, and a Franklin Research Award from the American Philosophical Society. Range is one of the things that he has. He's also Always fun to talk with, very interesting to listen to, and I've been eagerly looking forward to the talk today, which is titled, What is Pastoral? Again, More Versions, Professor Julian Yates. Thank you, Anne. I feel like I, there's a grave before me that I will now die into. The angle doesn't like, this cup won't like the angle. Well, thank you very much. Um, for inviting me to come and speak to you, Rob. Um, this talk grows out of a question that I was unable to answer at the previous talk, which was, Julian, you must have something to say about pastoral. I, of course, had nothing to say about pastoral, and now you can judge whether I do. Um, so, um, my title is eco-friendly, but trades in echoes. Um, it reprises Paul Alpers' iconic 1996 What is Pastoral? via the figure of a parenthetical repetition that demands to be reminded one more time, what was pastoral again? My answer, or perhaps simply what follows, will be more versions. Uh, an addendum, if you like, to William Empson's 1935 Some Versions of Pastoral. As I'm reading, it might be useful to think of this paper as an act of mutual taxidermy, an attempt to re-inhabit old skins too quickly sloughed and fill them out again in a way that Donna Haraway might say makes a fleshly difference. Uh, I'm going to try to model pastoral as what once might have been named a general text, uh, what Alfred Lord Whitehead would call a contexture of prehensions or a knot in motion an ongoing folding together of places, times, phrases, and things. My job, if you'll forgive the pun, will be to remain within its folds. Okay, this is the soften the audience up joke that's not together. Okay, folds, sheep, ha-ha. You can do it. Horace said something about delight in the teacher. And... The last fold will turn out to be a reading of a play by William Shakespeare, but I'm not going to tell you which one quite yet. Uh, and this omission on my part may be considered a cause of some modest feeling of suspense. I have an epigraph for you, culled from Donna Haraway's 2003 companion species manifesto, Dogs, People, and Significant Otherness, which I'll make use of a little later. It goes like this. My favorite trope for dog tales, writes Haraway, is metaplasm. Metaplasm, she continues, means a change in a word, for uh, example, adding, omitting, inverting, or transposing its letters, syllables, or sounds. The term is from the Greek metaplasmos, meaning remodeling or remolding. 
Metaplasm is a generic term for almost any kind of alteration in the word, intentional or unintentional. I use metaplasm, says Haraway, to mean the modeling of dog and human flesh, remolding the codes of life uh, in the history of companion species relating. Woof. What Haraway likes about metaplasm is the biological taste of the word. Compare and contrast protoplasm, cryptoplasm, neoplasm, germplasm, she suggests, and you'll come to appreciate the cross-cutting or splicing together of flesh and signifier, bodies and words, stories and worlds, in what we have been used to calling societies, and which she calls nature cultures. She finds this trope useful in capturing the various senses of her project, which is to demonstrate how the remodeling of dog and human flesh, remolding the codes, codes of life, produces what she terms companion species relating. What I like about Haraway's tropic term of mind is the script it suggests for literary and cultural studies. Um, in what follows, I'm going to argue that the translation of ecological modes of description to the humanities necessarily re-territorializes literary critics in literary form, uh, in which different forms are understood as ways of moving, ferrying, or shifting things, persons, animals, concepts, plants, and ideas between and among different spheres of reference. Um, literary form um, and you know, the successive worlds will be made as things travel between genres. Our expertise then, for me at least, is in the best sense of the senses of the words generic or rhetorical. Implicitly, I'm reading the likes of you and I as functionaries, relay points, check-in desks, uh, box office attendants and the cultural exogram we call the humanities. And I think it's only by own, uh, owning our roles and our expertise as purveyors of pastoral historicism, uh, that I think that we can come to terms uh, with the routines we have for making persons and constituting worlds. And so I ask, what was pastoral again? Martin Heidegger's conception of Dasein being there, writes Giorgio Agamben in the, in the open, is simply an animal that has learned to become bored, who has awakened from its captivation to its own captivation. This awakening of the living being to its own being captivated, this anxious and resolute opening to a not open, is the human. By captivation, we are to understand those forms of stimulus in the life world which pull upon us and determine us, and so which captivate. Being there, being human for Heidegger, then designates merely that animal which has learned to enter into a becoming idol. In the figure of idleness, whose locus classicus is the scene of a deserted country railway station where Heidegger finds himself stranded, threatened with a picture postcard pastoral, perhaps, the word idol derives from the Greek word uh, eidolon, meaning small picture, uh, Agamben finds the hallmark of what he calls the anthropological machine, a set of techniques that produce the hard-worn fiction of human exceptionalism. Agamben will end his reading of Heidegger on the animal by asking what by what logic which latencies, by what order of propositions we may render this machine inoperative, or marginally less lethal. Eschewing positive knowledge of the human as a quality or a category, Agamben will embrace a purely negative mode of knowledge that asserts at every opportunity the central emptiness, the hiatus that within man separates uh, man and animal. Nevertheless, there exists within Agamben's reading of Heidegger another possible way forward that would inquire not into the into positive knowledge of the human, but instead of the animal. In particular, for a gambon, a very famous tick. But coincidentally, while Heidegger was metaphorically cooling his, he his heels, 
at that lonely country station, just a few hundred miles away in, a lab, in the laboratory in Rostov, zoologist Baron Yakov von Uxkov had managed to keep a tick alive for 18 years without nourishment. In a condition of absolute isolation from its environment, as the gambon notes Riley, under precise conditions, this tick had effectively suspended its immediate relationship with its environment, without, however, ceasing to be an animal or becoming human. But by what order of metaphysics might we account for the condition of this tick? Was it profoundly bored? <laughs> or was it, as a Renaissance humanist might have framed the question, at leisure? Per <laughs> otium? Either free of everyday tasks and distractions. For a gambon, the prospect of animal otium, an otium decoupled from the mechanisms of the anthropological machine, might constitute an opening to another order of propositions about life and its parceling out into bios and zoe than is to be found in Heidegger. There's something then in pastoral that persists and attracts in that totem. The Gambon's desire to suspend the relays of what, we, of what he calls the anthropological machine serves as the rubric for much of my current work, though I'm perhaps less afraid of machines than he is. I'm interested in how the shifting uncertain relationship uh, between bios and zoe, human and other forms of life or liveliness, alters our relationship to the past. Uh, oh, sorry, sorry, uh, alters our relationship with those texts we name past, and how we ration out effects of the past, successive hits of reference to a this that once was, but now isn't, in our own discourses. For the likes of uh, sociologists such as Bruno Latour, the contiguous swelling that muddies categories of being manifests as a biblically charged knocking that comes from an as yet unknowable elsewhere, a knocking on a door, or from beneath the humanist table, or from inside the lid of a coffin. This knocking signals a generalized revolt of means. Nothing and no one, he writes for Prezin Kant, is willing any longer to serve as a simple means to the exercise of any will taken as an ultimate end. The tiniest maggot, the smallest rodent, the scantest river, the farthest star, the most humble automatic machines, each demands to be taken also as an end, by the same right as the beggar Lazarus at the door of the selfish rich man. The crisis, he says, is in our house, in our understanding of the collective, in our modes of inducting non-humans so that they come to bear and bear or bear, oops, or they come to bear or speak to human relations. Indeed, it's not really our house at all. Not answering the call, disavowing the knocking as noise, refusing access to a discourse of ends will only render the world more lethal. Ecology's aspiration to write the world without reduction upends our notions of scale, offering a radical challenge to our senses of commutative justice. How then to make good, how to eat well, how to answer the door, how to decide what sound, a possible subject, and what's just noise. How to be hospitable to an uninvited and possibly quite lethal guest. What was pastoral again? Given the stakes, the question sounds painfully ridiculous. We know what pastoral is. It's a genre, mode, activity, vehicle, or poetic device, sometimes idealizing, sometimes ironic, uh, that treats high themes in low costume. And depending on when and where you are, pastoral serves as a vehicle for exploring issues of patronage, poetic servitude, or for mounting institutional critique, uh, figured as a retreat, and a retreat from uh, engagement with the world, with a portrayal of an idealized version uh, as the world. As Rob Watson puts it in his hazarding ambitious uh, unified field theory um, of Renaissance nature, of Renaissance culture, sorry, back to nature. Pastoral is thus another cultural phenomenon explicable as a response 
often simultaneously as an inscribed banner of protest and a blank flag of surrender to the burdensome knowledge of mediation. In other words, the knowledge that there will be no unmediated access to some thing we call nature or which passes as natural. <clears throat> In his hands, the Vogue for Pastoral from 16th century, uh, 17th century uh, which, um, which dominates the mechanisms by, by which contemporaries attempted to dream away their time, becomes a vision of a society backing into nature that everywhere was felt to be receding from them. Jonathan Sorday intuits a similar reading at the end of his examination of the rise of the machine in Renaissance culture, the engine, uh, in his Engines of the Imagination, finding in, his, in the Vogue for Pastoral an ambivalent reaction to the possibilities offered by technology. Today, pastoral and its persistence is essentially something we use to frighten eco-critics, who are offering up what they think are friendlier distributions of knowledge or more capacious modes uh, of description than those previously on offer. Don't you think that you're more holistic than thy vocabulary of networks, ecologies, webs, or collectives is just a wee bit too holistic? Nostalgic? Romantic? Or yet, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who's knocking on your door and getting no answer? Come on, how do you really feel about slum? That is about those forms of life that lack charisma, which are local. <laughs> or who are so unphotogenic that it's not possible to grant them the status of honorary primates. <laughs> Invoking Leo Marx's famous dictum, no shepherd, no pastoral, <coughs> citing Paul Alpers' very sensible reminder that the central fiction of, uh, of pastoral, in Kenneth Burke's terminology, its representative anecdote, is not the golden age or idyllic landscapes, but herdsmen and their lives, won't get you off. Whatever its origins, whatever its minimal units, pastoral metaphor spins off images of worlds that are taken from nature. The metaphor affects too durable a transport. We are, after or before all, according to Heidegger, shepherds of being. For Raymond Williams, pastoral and its kitschy downgraded equivalents from the 16th century onwards are understood as a sort of perpetual stasis, stasis machine that sustains a murderous environmental and social fiction. An escalator, Williams famously calls it, moving without pause, forever backwards, into a receding image of the golden age du jour. Rhetorically, it may seem that I should, or am about to disagree with Williams and Company, Company's version of pastoral, but it's not quite that simple. One thing I have learned is that tactically, it's best to agree with everything everyone has ever said about pastoral. This is not because I'm some happy shepherd advocating a pastoral pluralism, but rather because everyone in his or own way has his or own particular section of the rhizome. Correct. The extended or general text of pastoral, pastoral as archive, will manifest in different times and places folded in strange and seemingly contradictory ways. Williams flags this point explicitly very early on in the country and the city. The initial problem, he writes, is one of perspective. Where you find yourself distributed, that is, in relation to pastoral. As you may remember, he begins the book with a cannily lyrical reconstruction of the two networks he has inhabited, or fallen between, to be correct, familial and academic, which pass out loosely into country and city, but which already, by his description, by the transport technologies that interpenetrate, fail to sit happily in either category. His rendering of the history of pastoral is the gradual localizing of the dream and then into a description and then some idealization of actual English country life and its social and economic relations, takes aim at the process whereby the charity of consumption, a feast, 
precludes and defers the possibility of a community which may have existed, but which remains still to come, a charity of production, of loving relations between men and women who work. The issue here is not, at least for me, Williams' desire for a utopian figure of unalienated labor, though that is present, but instead the way his disocclusion requires that all analysis of social relations occur belatedly, post-festum, after the feast, to use Marx's figure from capital. First the laborers arrive and are driven from the land, then the sheep arrive. For Williams, then, deeply concerned also by the scandalous ways in which generations of readers misconstrue literary references for historical reality, the story of pastoral yields a theory of ideology, a confusion of linguistic with natural reality, a reference with phenomenalism. Read this way, Williams' figure of the escalator seems far less hostile to the likes of a William Epson and his versions of pastoral, than Alpha's at least suggests. Sometimes a trick, but by terms a myth, a process, a machine, a double plot, an organism, or a taproot, pastoral is a queer business, permanent, and not dependent on a system of class exploitation, but that possibly is a contributing factor. It works by what sounds a lot like taxidermy, putting the complex into the simple, so as to imply a beautiful relationship between rich and poor, giving the impression of dealing with life completely. In pastoral, he writes, you take a limited life and pretend it to be a full and normal one. It's a metaplasmic refolding of surfaces that creates the appearance of depth, of life, or liveliness, not so much by what it adds, so much as by what it leaves out. No wonder pastoral endures, takes refuge in a larval Alice, is how Emerson puts it. The activity comes to stand for a predatory or proactive sense of mimesis, not exactly the ambient or ambulatory quality of nature writing that Timothy Morton has recently named an eco-mimesis, but a more fundamental, unromantic stuffing. For Emerson, pastoral names the operation by which language touches itself, and by that touching, which is in truth a folding, traces, traces a skin on the world, produces a set of effects that may be taken as reference, spun off as so many worlds or pasts. What was pastoral again? Ideology? Mimesis? What about all those shepherds? No shepherd, no pastoral, to which I had sheep. Ah. Mm -hmm. Sheep of the given. Sheep of the stock, or capital, so the story goes, that shepherds own in order to maintain the fiction that they are not hirelings, but free men. Sheep are the creatures whose care leaves our poets so much time on their hands. Otium, that is. Otium on Estum, we hope. Uh, this is one of the points that John Fletcher is keen to make in the preface of his wonderfully successful The Faithful Shepherdess, when he instructs his readers, you are ever to remember that shepherds are owners of flocks and not hirelings which is to insist, in a sense, and just to avoid confusion, that they are not sheep. There were, of course, and I suppose are, times when, it was, when it's important to remember that not sheep, in this case, in the Renaissance case, poets and courtiers especially, were really, in fact, not sheep. Except, of course, when it was good for a person to be a sheep, and you found yourself lying down in green pastures, celebrating that whatever the circumstances, you would not lack the aid of a certain divine shepherd or found yourself a bit overexcitedly signing letters addressed to Queen Elizabeth I with the epithet, Your Majesty's Sheep, and most bound vassal, as did Lord Chancellor Sir Christopher Hatton in the early 1590s, Elizabeth coming to refer to him affectionately as Robert Cecil, not very charitably, but later opined as her mum. <laughs> Sometimes it was good for the not-sheep to be a sheep, 
reassuring. Maybe people give them the right shepherd a little sexy. <laughs> Obviously, I'm playing here with a fairly evolved set of metaphors that, as an animal behaviorist or, or ethologist would tell you, has have nothing at all to do with sheep. But for an analyst such as Fernando Bell or for any associative model of social relations, these metaphors are indexed to an alliance of human, animal, and plant resources um, or actors. An ancient choice or priority for ruminants and wheat, for adult rights, which from everything else is descended. To the extent that pastoral speaks to uh, the world produced by pastoralism, uh, even from the remote venue of the urban or the picture postcard hills, it mobilizes metaphors that derive from what Harold would call the formation of a multi-species, human, dog, sheep, goat. By the mutual domestication of animal and human, transhuman husbandry is etched into the land. It built the circuits um, that paper pastoral will and now travels. The problem with pastoral comes with the fact that, whereas the remodeling or remolding of human and dog yields for Haraway at least a positive model of the companion species, the articulation of sheep as stock offers a model still a companion species rooted in domination. The trade-off between sheep and human, not sheep, or only sometimes sheep, is not one of mutually enhanced expertise, but instead body parts for a re um, in return for a limited exposure to predators. There are good and, good and bad companion species, good and bad multi-species. Only to alive to the competitive world of human ovine canine relations in a Europe shaped by the wool trade. Edward Topsell devotes over 50 pages of his history of four footed beasts to his justification of English sheep as the most useful of animals. He makes a particular point of congratulating Englishmen on their good fortune because of the absence of wolves in England. Uh, this means that sheep feel no fear. This is why their wool is so soft and curly. <laughs> as Gaucon Pastor has told us, at least for Thomas Wright in his Passions of the Mind in general, the sheepy experience of predation uh, by wolves served as a privileged example for discussions of the passions of humans. The sheep of England would appear to be an insular exception. They feel like him. Oh, happy English sheep. Oh, happy English not sheep, and they're not sheep, sheep dogs. <laughs> so what about those more versions? What do they entail? Well, if you are an animal behaviorist or, or a primatologist turned sheep farmer, as in the case of Thelma Rao or Vincent uh, Despre, you don't assume that sheep are sheep. Instead, you treat them as members of a much broader group, or gregarious, long-lived vertebrates capable of mutual recognition. You give them a chance to be more interesting, less objectile or slimy. For Rao and ethologists in general, in a world where there is only mediation, where mediation is recognized uh, to be the way tomorrow's world is constituted, all that matters is the rubric by which you model things, the way in which you're put into use of the world renders it available for successive uses. The question for me, I won't yet presume for us, is essentially the same. How then to inhabit pastoral and its range of variously sheepy metaphors a bit differently, a bit more interestingly, uh, to use Raoul's favorite word, with an eye to their occluded or latent possibilities. Somewhere in the pastoral archive, Agamben's figure of a dawdling, idling photium persists. 
And this, I think, is the Emsonian gesture. What is or what will proletarian literature be is the question um, some versions of pastoral attempts to adjudicate. Will it or must it be pastoral? Likewise, it's important to recall that Williams' portrayal of the, of the pastoral escalator runs in tandem with, the deploy with his deployment of the terms residual, dominant, and emergent as categories of description merely, which, having no referential basis in historical reality, nevertheless are used by a critic as a sort of advanced GPS system as he tries to work out when or where this or that cultural phenomenon falls in a story of human making and manufacture so mediated by the means of production that it's hard to know which cultural forms are progressive or regressive. In other words, if there is no exit or end to pastoral, it's because, it's because the activity it designates describes a process by which human discourses apprehend something called the world, inclining it so that it comes to bear on and speak of human concerns. No retreat, then, and no return. Pastoral is it. Given what I think pastoral is and was, it seems much too early to be moving on, much too premature to think that we can escape its metaphors. Instead, let's trace its latencies, its badly behaved metaphors, treating the general text as the warp and weft of a knitted skin. As I've argued elsewhere, this is what Thomas More begins in the Utopia, when he has Raphael Ephodeus summon the sheep of England to Carl Morton's table in order to speak the truth about human labor relations in Tudor England. There's this obnoxious English lawyer who's claiming that some poor people prefer to be rascals. Raphael shuts him up, claiming Morton's attention by mentioning the strangeness of English sheep who have turned on saddle and now eat their shepherds. <laughs> Raphael's In England Sheep Eat Men exposes the depredations not of enclosure per se, but of one particularly sinister companion species, the enclosing great landowner who raises sheep for wool. Raphael's animal summoning carves a predatory ovine, sort of a minimal unit of sheepy antagonism, um, that you can trace fairly continuously through Tudor dialogues from the 1540s onwards, culminating perhaps in the materialization of actually predatory weir sheep in the pastoral New Zealand mise en scene of the wonderful, uh, wonderfully horrible film Black Sheep, whose sheep, souped up by a complete misunderstanding of SCMT, somatic nuclear cell transfer, aka <laughs> cloning, uh, do in fact literally and very graphically eat men and women. As they do so, these sheep become, actually you probably do need to, I, I actually, the fact that I said that probably is that I definitely need to watch it again. It's got to be more interesting than that. Um, um, uh, you know, the Thelma Rowell in me dictates that since I have a knee-jerk response, I need to rethink that. Um, as they do so, these sheep, become, uh, these sheep become wolves, morph, their skin stretches to accommodate their newly shaped, sharpened incisors. You might also kill the lawyers, all of them, or for that matter, anyone with a pen. That's what William Shakespeare and Thomas Nash have Jack Cade and Dick the Butcher do in 2 Henry VI, as uh, Nash and Shakespeare splice together phrases from Cade's Kentish Uprising of 1450, Jack Straw and Watt Tyler's Uprising of 1381, the 1517 Uprising by xenoglottophobic apprentices, the Hackett uh, Rebellion in July 1591, the Feltmaker's Revolt uh, of June 1592, in order to create what's usually called the Cade Sequence or Interlude. Time will not permit me to venture more than a stenographic reading of the double plot of 2 Henry VI, but such a reading depends for me on the play's multiple invocation of ruminants, sheep and not sheep. 
Jack Cade enters the play in Act 3, Scene 1, as John Cade of Ashford, the Duke of York's substitute or deputy, seduced into a performance of the now defunct heir to the throne, uh, now defunct heir John Mortimer, whose face, gait, and speech he resembles. York recalls the headstrong Kentishman's performance in Ireland, where, outnumbered by a troop of kerns, thighs peppered with darts, he turned sharp quilled porcupine, and then, when rescued, capered upright like a wild morisco, shaking the bloody darts as his, as his bowels. Jack's skin-stretching performance, he's a porcupine become Moorish, become hybrid Moorish Morris dancer, depending on which sense of the morisco you hear, turns heads. York's among them, and so he turns intelligencer, portraying first Kearns and now hopes York for comments. The play begins then in, in Act 3, Scene 1, by essentially avoiding the historical Jack Cade, whoever he may have been, in favour of a spectacular series of surfaces, or Cade effects, that York appears to manipulate. Indeed, in York's speech, Cade is recognised in value as an unruly mimetic agent that parasitically eats its host, obliterating all sense of the original. On their way to the accelerated utopia Dick ordains when Cade grants his suit that only the laws of England may come out of your mouth, Jack pauses and sees a sheep. Kill the lawyers, says Dick. Nay, that I mean to do, he replies. But as the more open-ended, is not this a lamentable thing, that the skin of an innocent lamb should be made parchment? That parchment being scribbled o'er should undo a man? Some say the bee stings, but I say tis the bee's lamb. For I did once uh, see uh, for <coughs> me, for I did but once for, uh, excuse me <coughs> that again for I did but seal once to a thing and that was never my own man since and there it is an innocent lamb not dead yet but there's a piece of vellum on stage at this point in the play then for a moment Jack sees a sheep in that surface touches it maybe feels the sting of past acts of writing in the present. The arrival of the clerk from Chatham, a man who can read and write, how now, who's there, converts the stay in discovery to the prior acts of writing or refolding of animal skin that gives a bee's sting to wax into an immediate attack on whichever human relays, clerks, lawyers, etc., in the writing machine, find themselves caught up in the action. Things speed up and the sheep is forgotten or rather transposed into other registers. Gloucester is described as a lamb and suffered the butcher. What Cade recovers momentarily in the figure of the skin of a live sheep, a biblically charged innocent, I should say here, I'm sorry, that vellum is uh, a biblically charged innocent lamb, however, is the elided term or missing actor of an institutionally sanctioned mode of writing. Recovering the occluded um, actor, unfolding a complex form or chain of metonymies into its constitutive links, and doing so by hallucinating a sheep, he opens the figure to other possible languages and contracts, sacral, pastoral, legal, and economic. Was it not for the interruption uh, and Smith and Weaver's immediate reduction of the clerk from Chatham to his ability to write and read and cast account, and who knows why Jack might have led us? Just as Jack discerns the material semiotic relays that make his world and begins to tinker with the figure, in walks the walking, breathing personification of institutional writing. A clerk named Emmanuel, meaning God be with us, a formula frequently used as a heading for legal documents. Let's kill all the lawyers. Look, here's one now. And they do. They kill everyone with a pen. All this talk of skin returns me to my epigraph and to Haraway's favorite trope for what I, I'd now call her human dog sheep tails, metaplasm. 
For Haraway, metaplasm names the key technique by which a biological as well as semiotic archive is successively performed to create all manner of differently animated beings and worlds. In effect, Haraway extends the conception of the figure into the world of biology, extending our sense of the figure as a tropic operator whose job it is to splice together words and things, signs and matter, in order to constitute worlds and maintain them. Crucially, metaplasm can signify a mistake, a stumbling, a troping that makes a fleshly difference. Her redefinition of the trope provides no shelter from the fact that the world is populated by inhuman and frequently indifferent agencies, not our own. That's happened by accident. The choice of metaplasm as a privileged trope marks a step for Haraway towards an order of description in which it no longer makes sense to speak of an individual species at all, so much as of a companion species or multi-species crowd, a network or assemblage of, of differently animated actors, human, animal, plant, and mineral, who exchange properties, biological, semiotic, and figurative, uh, as they collectively constitute the world. While Haraway's interest in vocabulary may seem light years away from 206, the model of the companion or multi-species echoes the language of popular protest, of commons and commonwealth, subsistence and utopia, we find in the play. What manifests in the play as a hallucinatory stay of proceedings, holding back only for a moment Dick the Butcher's let's kill all the lawyers, represents in Haraway's terms a dawning awareness of the material semiotic work performed by all the plants and animals whose manufactured declensions constituted the writing machines of Tudor England. This is idling in a dampened sense, an idling or tinkering with relays in the archive, out of which various pasts and persons will be made. Jack sees some of the network of human and non-human actors that constitute a parchment that stinks, sheep and wax, and this knowledge provides him with a weapon against his betters. The disorienting dose of reference, the palpable thisness provided by animal skin, has a leveling effect that detaches him from the world produced by parchments. He hopes this insight his synesthetic registering of how parchment can stain might make a fleshly difference. In our moment, Haraway's redefinition of metaplasm represents one such attempt to engineer a figural event in our archive that she hopes will change the routines we have for constituting persons and collectives. By asking us to apprehend our relations with animal and plant others with a rubric of companion or multi-species, she hopes to constitute a difference in our ways of building collectives, in our rhetoric of description, and so of making a home in the world. Jack Cade's ovine summoning, as he discovers the figure of an innocent lamb in the surface of, of a parchment or a piece of vellum is an ally gesture, a momentary leveling of codes that might make something different, thinkable, possible, knowable. Both try to tinker with the routine mechanisms of their respective writing machines, reading inside, reaching inside to refold things differently. Beyond the broad thematic continuity between Haraway's own political commitments and the languages of popular protest we find in the play, metaplasm itself marks the play, the playtext of 206, in very distinct ways. As Ross MacDonald tells us, during the Renaissance, metaplasm was a crucial tool for maintaining metrical regularity while incorporating allusions to or quotations from other texts. Metaplasm and its allied tropes cause the surface of the text to ripple but not to tear registering the presence of other texts, or designating a zone of absorptive poetic play. Metaplasm also happens to be the governing trope of the Jack Cade sequence or interlude, with the place folding and refolding of differently timed words, events, and codes, such that the play offers us, if you like, a kind of palimpsest of popular protest. In 4.2, 
Jack is also the butt of an extended study in metaplasmic verbal play, as his, as his fellow rebels refold his name in parody. Back in Act 4, Scene 2, just as Jack embarks on his own becoming Mortimer, uh, deploying a royal weed to absorb the commons, uh, Dick and company carve him up. Sloughing off his patron in Cade in order to announce his true genealogy, Jack demands silence, which Dick enforces. Thus begins a double oration. Cade's predatory mimesis of Mortimer, just as York had said with the plan in Act 3, Scene 1, and his comrades' metaplasmic refolding of him, punning on the alternative sense of Cade as barrel, on the mortar in Mortimer, deriving Cade as bricklayer, on Janet in Plantagenet to find his mother a midwife, restringing Lacey as laces, transposing the G and the D to put his father in the cage. Here's Jack. We, John Kay, so termed of our supposed father, or rather, of stealing a cade of herrings, says Dick, for our enemies shall fall before us, inspired with the spirit of putting down kings and princes, command silence! Silence! says Dick. My father was a Mortimer. He was an honest man and a good bricklayer. My mother was a Plantagenet. I knew her well. She was a midwife. My, my wife descended from the Laces. She was indeed a peddler's daughter and sold many Laces. But now of late, not able to travel with her furred pack, she washes bucks here at home. Therefore, am I an honorable, of an honorable house? Aye, by my faith, the field is honorable. And there he was born under a hedge, for his father had never a house but a cage. Valiant I am, as needs must, for beggary is valiant. I am able to endure much. No question of that. I have seen him whip three market days together. <laughs> Dick the Butcher and John Weaver's refolding of Cade produces another weed. As the tradesmen become rebels that Cade seeks to absorb, uh, make his skin ripple or bubble, emitting a multiplicity of voices and words that are parenthetically and so insistently more present. As the play shows us, it's only such interventions as Jack's, write, uh, as Jack's in the writing machine uh, and Shakespeare's in the archival remains of popular protest. Uh, in other words, attempts that aim to mess with the efficacy of parchment and wax and the metaphorical ties that render some, not other, uses of the world routine that will count or produce different types of worlds. That is, as long as there's no Lord Clifford to enter in Act 4, Scene 8 and disperse the crowd by magically saying the words, the words Henry V, Henry V. It's not parchment made of sheepskins, asks Hamlet. I, my lord, and are calf skins too, answers Horatio. They are sheep and calves which seek out assurance in that. I will speak to this fellow. Whose grave is this, Sirrah? You dare not, as Hamlet tells Horatio, lay your trust in the writing machine. There's no trust or assurance to be found there. Its relays animate the dead. It betrays your trust rerouting your desires. Henry V. There's no stock or security to be found in parchment, like some kernel of idiotic, ecstatic joy. Uh, the mere name Henry V trumps all, disperses the crowd, and so abandoned and on the run, we meet an uncertainly bovine or ovine Jack Cade in Act 4, Scene 10, ready to vanish, who has climbed over a brick wall into the garden see if he can eat grass or pick a salad, where he is dispatched in short order by the otium-seeking Alexander Iden, who just happens to be out for a quiet walk. Iden prides himself on his self-imposed rustication from the turmoils of the court to his small inheritance his father has left him, 
I seek not I seek not to wax great by others' waning. He remarks, or to gather wealth. Sufficeth, he adds, that what I have maintains my state, and I send the poor well pleased from my gate. Speaking from the same script of Platonic withdrawal that we find articulated by Raphael in Book One of Utopia, Iden enters the play with a full tummy, perfectly at ease with his self-regulating body and the well-maintained boundaries of his estate. Like some overly mimetic reader of Moore's Utopia, Iden presents as a recreational humanist as he who regulates his body and his estate so perfectly as to achieve a state of equilibrium in his exchanges with the world. Input equals output. He needs nothing. He produces no surplus. Eden, in Hollandshed, turned Iden, or self-same, in the play, comes upon Jack, who snarls at him wolfishly. They draw, and Iden kills him. Jack dies with famine on his lips. Oh, I am slain. Famine, and no other hath slain me. And I that never feared any am vanquished by famine. Jack's exit, dispatched by a recreating Iden, represents an uncertain signal. In what remains still perhaps the most influential reading of the scene, Stephen Greenblatt discerns the naturalization of private property rights as the marker of collective belonging, subtly folded into what will retrospectively be recorded as a defense of the realm from a monstrous traitor. Symbolic estate gives away to real estate, is how he puts it. Greenblatt is aware of the reference to court and country, but rules it part of the scenery, otherwise not operative. But there's more to it than that. Before he kills him, Ivan subjects Jack to a negative blazon, uh, uh, at every point magnifying their difference. The difference, that is, between the leisured and well-fed and the poor and the hungry, between a recreating gentleman and a famished cane on his way to becoming cattle, to use the period's word for the range of the voice it herds. Oppose thy steadfast gazing eyes to mine, demands Ivan. See if thou canst thou face me with thy looks, set limb to limb, and thou art the lesser. Thy hand is but a finger to my fist, the leg a stick compared with this truncheon. The confrontation between a well-fed and well-read country gentleman and a famished illiterate or differently literate cave stands as a stark reminder of the causes of popular protest in the period, uh, even as it may ostensibly stage the victory of private property as such. Uh, it's Cade who speaks the language of butchery in this scene, asking his sword to cut Ivan's chimes of beef, but the specter of cannibalism it raises seems inclined to magnify the words we hear most often. Famine, and no other, but slainly, or Cade's last words, for I that never feared any, and vanquished by famine. The Cade sequence ends then, as uprisings tended to, with the populace once again becoming the pivotal sheep of historical record, that is, by returning to the matter of subsistence that animated their demands in the first place. In 410, in effect, you will have been watching the retraining of Jack's mouth. No longer the self-predicating parliament of the land, the mouth of this wolfish sheep is denied flesh as he is forced to eat grass. Jack's final skin-turning performance is becoming cattle registers the efficacy of those institutionally sanctioned relays in the writing machine that are proof against his and his fellow's acts of writing. Only in such things as Henry V was their true power. Then again, seeded into the play remains the crumpled figure of an innocent lamb, which serves as an antagonistic record or archival trace of actual rebel writing practices, and not simply rebel violence. This phrase endures, a latent, figural possibility waiting to be unfolded by other audiences or readers who might make of it the kind of fleshly difference the historical Jack and his fellows attempted, and which Haraway seeks to engineer today. Was this pastoral? Your answer may be no. It's the absence of Georgic. <laughs> but the problem with Georgic, 
the best poem by any poet. But in the 16th century, at least, it's not clear if Dryden had said that, whether that would be taken to mean Virgil or Thomas Tusser, is that it's hard to know for sure whether it's for real or whether it's not, not a Renaissance form of reality TV. What I've attempted to do this afternoon is to inhabit pastoral as something in need of ongoing concern, a contact zone with the figurative and semiotic fine edge of the privileged multi-species of Western Europe, human, sheep, god, goat, dog, whose successive transformations by technologies old and new might render those metaphors and modes of citizenship or creaturely life with which they are allied negotiable. For me, this is the kind of archival politics or parasitic resignification of routines named past but still lived that embarking on a cultural prehistory of environmentalism entails. Well, I hope, as you've noticed, I've not once used the words environment or nature as a valid referent. They are both terms that, to put it as bluntly as possible, we're going to have to live without if we are to discover a process of becoming in which we all have a cuddly or slimy constituted common world. Thank you. I hope that you have found this paper interesting. <laughs> Invited, obviously, to agree. <laughs> <laughs> but that is me. So, do we have some questions for Julie? Well, I'll start off. Can I sit down? Oh, no. I want to see you. <clears throat> well, I, I'm interested in a sort of crossover between real sheep and fictitious sheep. Sure. I mean, you, on one hand, you've got um, in some form of pastoral tradition, the presence of a figure like Gabriel Oak, whose sheep are all run mad and go off the cliff and kill themselves. And those are, those are so, so to speak, real sheep in contrast to the sheep who are just ornamental figurines in a great deal of early modern pastoral poetry. And it's, it seems to be moved between those without distinguishing. Now, I wondered if you comment on it. Right. I mean, I think your question goes to the extent to which, in reading pastoral, you can actually reconnect to actual shepherding practices. And there's a wonderful moment in um, Pepys's diary where uh, Pepys and someone or other are out for a ride in the country, and they encounter a flock of sheep, and it's the first time Pepys has actually seen sheep. And, um, well, I don't I'm telling the story. Um, it's one of the times that Pepys has seen sheep. And he, uh, so he leaps out of the carriage and runs over because it's sheep. Uh, and he writes this sort of long, sort of very sort of, um, um, sort of, uh, really, this is an encomium to the experience. Um, and so there is a, I think, and that is actually one of the ways in which um, the sort of what you're talking about, the less fashionable end of pastoral. Uh, ends up being reclaimed as access to actual sheep, sheep raising practices. Uh, and that's what he thought. I mean, in other words, that if you are, say, an animal behaviorist or uh, someone like Phil Morale, then that becomes quite important because um, there's a, I think Keith Thomas says, um, the shepherds knew the faces of their sheep. That that was one of the ways in which they would actually, uh, a good shepherd knows his sheep. Uh, and I'm not trying to um, necessarily, uh, which 
immediately becomes translated into uh, uh, an important set of uh, advice for a parish priest. Uh, and there was, there's a very real crossover uh, between actual shepherding practices in the country, in, 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 um, in, in the country and uh, uh, human shepherding practices. Um, I think I'm, I mean, in part, this paper is responding to the denigration of pastoral as retreat and return as an idealization of the landscape and in terms of uh, trying to sort of pry open that set of metaphors to something else. Uh, I'm not sure that I want to uh, become overly sentimental about, um, in other words, semi-realistic portrayals, not of sheep, but of sheep in their interactions with human persons, in other words, sheep conscripted to human, to human needs. You're not getting, in sort of in quotations, access to real sheep. Um, and I'm not sure I necessarily would want um, access to real sheep um, in that sense. Um, in in the in, in those in, you know in those practices, there's a there's a sort of minor literature of people who have turned sheep farmer. But um, uh, before you fix it, as you like. But um, but there's a minor literature of of um, uh, of, of people who turn to sheep farming, and of course they experience the difficulty of what that means because they don't know how to do it. And uh, sort of previous representations of, of sort of sheepy practices uh, end up becoming very important for that. So yes, I mean, I suppose I mean, I've, I've chosen to emphasise the um, aestheticised uh, sort of poetic pastoral in this paper. Nathaniel with Chuck Cave. Well, yes. I mean, I mean, I think um, my my sheep are thoughts writes Sir Philip Sidney, and uh, Jack Cade reverses that. I'm tempted to say that actually one of the shaping things for the Jack Cade sequence is actually a sort of willful misreading of Golding's preface to the Metamorphoses, uh, in, the, in the sense that uh, he takes, it, it's a reading the, the uh, description of the golden world without any, with, with completely, uh, no, it's a complete misreading of what the golden, the golden world entails. I mean, the thing that bothers me about the Jack Cade episode in terms of what you're doing with it is that, as I recall, Cade is actually more like a sheep than he knows. I mean, he's being manipulated. There's, well, there's a, uh, yeah. th there is a aristocratic yeah. backdrop. That's York 3-1. Yeah, yeah. That, that in, in which he, yeah. he is being in, conscripted into, he's being herded yeah. in a direction that he's not. You can play it that way, but it's a, it's a script, not a, not a pet. But then, so my, my question is then, with this sort of with response to the Raymond Williams stuff, okay, so you're looking for a proletariat productive pastoral dealing relating to sheep. And then you've got Jack of Newbury. What? I mean, that is sort of a pastoral of industrial relations, and since they happen to be spinning wool, it's got your sheepy connection. Um, I mean, of idealization. Know, what I'll own to is that, yes, in this paper I played Jack Cade. Uh, in other words, yes, I'm reading him as an allegorical figure of a literary critic today. In other words, I'd like to see... Banished. Well, uh, yeah, if you, if, you, if you play too much with the, the, the archival politics, there's a chance that you'll fall foul of the P&T system. And, and end up mm. uh, No, I mean, that's, that's, you know, yeah. that's, that, you know, if we, I, I think, I think my objection, in other words, I'm, I think I began the paper by 
suggesting that an institutional self-analysis, in other words, an, an ecological modeling of, uh, or, or uh, an ecological uh, modeling of how academic practices fit in with larger uh, scale practices, should be part of what happens when uh, an ecology gets translated into the humanities as a um, um, as a mode of description. And if you don't do that, then essentially you're just um, conscripting a metaphor to do work that you don't quite understand its ideological function. But now spell that out, because I missed that totally, the, the Jack Cater's literary critic spelled well, out. I, I mean, it was, I have a habit of doing that, and it's not a good one, of, of allegorizing a, a, a character as a, as a methodology. So it was, yeah, I mean, I'm setting up a, essentially a, a commonality between Haraway and Jack Cater. Uh, and, and, you know, your reading of the Cade sequence as Jack as sheep is precisely a very, very powerful and well-supported reading within our field. It's a reading that Roger Warren takes on fairly directly in his Oxford edition by refusing to print uh, Act 4 with the sides for uh, the co-conspirators and producing a completely flat text with the objection that what, a side, what adding sides to the edition does is impose a reading which inclines towards uh, essentially uh, viewing Jack Cade's performance as something that he's not aware of. And, and this comes from Warren's scene of a production of the play that I won't remember where, where it was, uh, um, where the play was performed very successfully with a sort of canny knowing this is how we're going to actually organize a community with horizontal relations in which it's a parody of a royal we and a parody of uh, the sort of uh, ritualized practices of, of, um, of fealty, such that, the, such that Jack is aware of the kind of heteroglossic play around him, uh, and that this stage is uh, a sort of a version, that, a version of the play that you can't turn into carnival in a, a kind of reductive sense. But it's something very, um, it's an ultimate uh, community being imagined on stage. Jack actually, there are lines in the play which I'm going to forget, unfortunately, I'll not be able to summon in a longer version of this that I use that, that show that Jack actually, just, uh, there's a moment in that fall where he speaks directly to um, the point you're making about uh, York's sponsorship of it, and he denies that. In other words, not, and it's not, it's a, it's a sort of self-reflective moment because there's no one who would understand that uh, on stage at that moment. So there's some distance. So in other words, yes, uh, I'm choosing, I suppose, to read Jack as a, um, as a, um, uh, as not scripted by York. Okay, that's, that's one thing. The other thing I do is that I think that um, Stephen Justice's um, book, uh, which I'm going to forget now, on 1381, uh, actually is a really useful, uh, in other words, and, and Stephen Justice's book um, on, you remember the, the title? No? Um, it's a reading of rebel writing practices in 1381 and a systematic um, obliteration um, in the chronicling of, of, of the Peasants' Revolt. And the archive of Blanchard uh, um, and Hall that um, Shakespeare and Nash are working through um, has ripples of strange rebel writing practices. Uh, in other words, they destroyed very particular kinds of court records. Uh, and that's generally depicted as an all-out attack on writing. So what I'd, what I'd like to argue is that it, we would be mistaken to expect a positive. And by positive, I don't mean 
uh, in evaluative terms, but simply an actual representation of popular protest as, uh, as, as a sort of literate writing practice in the play. And then instead, the, this sort of strange moment with parchment and sheet is, if you like, a, a realization on stage of a kind of ripple in the archive uh, of the Peasants' Revolt that uh, records, uh, uh, even though they were otherwise systematically uh, obliterating the record, actual differently literate writing practices on the part of uh, working people. Make that connection with literary criticism clearer to me. I mean, I always identified with Eden, so that um, I just I, I need I need you to spell it out just in simpler sure. terms. Sure. Uh, okay. Uh, Anthony Eden. Sorry, I said Anthony Eden. <laughs> 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 Eden. He's Eden in the play. Not Eden. Yeah. Um, um, I don't know uh, Eden. But Eden's um, my yeah. problem. It's, it's no, 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 no. I, okay, I suppose now. Well, I mean, Eden is a bad historicist. And who who uh, essentially uh, reads uh, Utopia and, and, and sort of fails to miss the fact that it's a conversation um, uh, about making a manufacture. And Jack Cade is a, uh, engaged in a. There's a moment at which Jack Cade is engaged in a moment of archival politics, in sort of tr attempting to actually uh, change the uh, um, the modes of writing. So. And that's essentially what I'm advocating as a deconstructive term in literary criticism, a sort of return to the 1980s. Mm. Um, I want to pick up on the, on the moment of the sheep, but at first I just want to say, because um, I've never mentioned to this publicly, that, that uh, I love listening to that, and um, that every encounter with your work has been, um, for me, like a dizzying attempt, I feel myself trying to change my perspective when I listen to work um, to the kinds of switches in perspective that you uh, accomplish with the facility. And like, I just really appreciate that. Um, and so. Okay, uh, look at the butt. And no, 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 there's no butt. And actually, I have a focusing and right here, which is uh, I recently reread the Raymond Williams for some other thing, you know, the country, the beginning with the escalator moment um, in country and city. And I felt this kind of dissatisfaction, which actually. Um, there's something flattening about it uh, that it, it's utterly convincing, but something flattening about it. And so, if part of the objective of the talk is to um, help us get off the escalator or think about what it means to not just be on the escalator uh, of continuously making the pastoral um, mean certain things, uh, it, it was helpful in that sense. The, the question I guess I have, um, or the moment I want to put pressure on, because it's such a crucial moment, it was the most vivid moment for me of the talk of when. Um, they're looking, he's looking at the sheep and he sees vellum, right? Um, was, uh, um, and something to do, and I'm not gonna articulate this quite right, but it's an individual to an individual moment, right? When he sees this individual sheep and thinks, vellum, is that correct? Or, well, and sheep to me, um, yeah. <laughs> and like, the, um, since you're resisting um, kind of a cold stick and, um, you advocate for slime, right? Yeah. Um, then uh, the fact that the, that that reading is premised on an individual recognizing the individual sheep, right? Um, I just wondered about the collectivity of sheep. Um, do you see the kind of wedge? I don't really know what it means, but I feel it. 
um, that there's a sort of wedge there that the fact it feels anthropomorphic, I guess if I was going to simplify it, it feels anthropomorphic still that you have a character looking at a sheep, recognizing the potential for breaking into writing, um, and that the sheep represents the writing materials, and that takes us back. That feels, well, um, he's, I mean, the, I mean, not the, the sheep's perspective. No. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't believe in the sheep's perspective. I don't mean to quite dumb it down that way. Yeah. No, I'm going to mean, I, I mean, I think that, um, um, well, I mean, do you want the line again? I mean, no, I just want to know what you think of that. Like, um, and, I'm, I'm just, and if, well, if I mean, that is, if that holds any water for you or not, you could just say that it doesn't matter to me. Well, you mean you mean obviously let me parrot it back. You, you, I mean your question, as I understand it, is um, uh, I heard several things in it. One of which is um, one of which I think is uh, is the sort of what how how would you approach sheep? Would you approach it? Does it make sense to actually articulate an individual sheep as an entity as opposed to a sheep yeah. from a flock? Okay, I think that's a very I mean I think that's a really um, salient point. Uh, I would say that I, I, uh, that's also marks a, a limit on my expertise, at which point I start to go and read Tom Morrell's essays on, um, on sheep behavior, um, because she really knows about sheep um, and watches them and tries to model a set of interactions between them where they are not scripted by human concerns. Um, so I mean, in other words, I think sheep, sheep Whatever she yeah, wants. Okay, the question, I mean, the question I, right. Yeah. In other words, can 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 Some an animal be, be um, sort of enfranchised within a language of, of, of uh, sort of human rights or human desires? Yeah. No, I agree. Uh, there's a limit on that. And I sort of talk about that um, in another instance in terms of an empty set. Um, the idea that um, uh, the question of what sheep might want if it makes sense to actually inscribe it within a discourse of lack. Okay, the syntax of this gets torturous. Um, is that, um, I, I mean, I don't know what sheep want. I mean, there are people who will tell, who tell you that who do know what sheep want, that they want to get to be sheep, which is a fairly, which is a fairly sort of, you know, um, sensibly circular uh, kind of, 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 of response. Uh, they want to be left alone. I, I guess that's right. Um, My question is, I can't articulate it. It's about the fact that that's an individualizing moment and that there's a community an individual, issue an individualizing between the sheep and the character well, and, yeah. and, and that the writing issue that is brought up is actually collective and communal. Not that the sheep just might want to see itself as a part of the flock. No, okay. I mean, I was, okay. I mean, I, I was just, just responding yeah. to a variety of things I had. I mean, let, let's, let's read the line. It's not this a lamentable thing, um, that of the skin of an innocent lamb should be made parchment. Now a game is being played there because of the phrase "innocent lamb." So there's a, there's a, there's a sort of a, uh, a, a, a sort of a rhetorical deployment of uh, another lamb um, in, in that moment to have a, to you know, provide a kind of um, a hit of ultimate reference, you know, uh, to um, um, uh, that parchment being scribbled over should undo a man. But immediately, what takes the focus is the parchment, and the parchment as parchment. Is is really what's the focus of of, of, of Jack's attention, and, and that starts to break down immediately into its constituent parts. Uh, some say the bee stings, but I say it is the bee's wax, the wax that seals um, the parchment that actually makes the legal document valid. Um, for I did but seal once to a thing, seal once to a thing, and I was never my own man since. So the the object is really the parchment, 
And what he's doing is discerning the manufactured animal uh, remains um, and plant remains in, that, that actually creates this object before him. So at that very moment, you're dealing with a particular use value of part of a sheep. Not, 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 not a sheep per se. What he's doing is he's, he's spectralizing the object. And it's, a, it's, a, it's a, actually a completely sort of Marxist moment. It's the table dancing in, in, in Capital. And that's what Jack is doing here, essentially, um, rhetorically, in animating the object so that uh, um, uh, people can discern the amount of work, energy, labor that goes into producing the parchment as a stable object, something that remains the same, which in a you know, kind of pre-industrial society, I mean, it, 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 I think the, you know, you, the list of those object, objects that don't change is much more restrictive than ours. Um, so um, I'm interested in that, that deployment of, it's really possible, of, of sort of, uh, of making, an, making an object speak, making an an, uh, hallucinating an animal. So, but I think it trades on a, uh, an awareness of a, a lamb. Okay, that's up the ante. It's not a sheep, it's a lamb. Um, a lamb that also has immediately sacral um, connotations. Yeah. And actually that seems at least to raise the possibility that what happens is that if you look at that and you look at the scribbled vellum if you're not literate, what you fundamentally see there is flagellation. Yes, though, it, though I mean, you should, we shouldn't underestimate the ability of, of, of differently literate people in the period to recognize their names, to be taught to recognize Latin formulae that are the crucial legal language in a contract they're making. In other words, there's partial literacy which is essentially, again, I'm just sort of parroting back to the injustice, is something that I think alters the meaning of this moment um, on stage. One other thing I'd say, just before I go, is that this, moment, this, 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 this figure is also freighted with uh, a sort of long legal history in terms of Libra Box. Uh, in other words, the primacy of voice over writing. And, in, uh, and there's a sort of a... A, uh, a potential that when, when Jack's mouth is ordained as the, as the parliament, so that what he says is law, um, which is enacted very comically on stage. Um, but um, so this is a this is a heavily freighted moment. Oh, actually, can I? Just to, so to clarify, sheep in this moment are or the lamb is a metaphor. It's nothing. I mean, maybe it, maybe the sheep exists in this in when he's looking at it for him, but it's always going to be a metaphor. It's inescapably a metaphor. Is that right? That it's, uh, well, it's actually, always actually, a lamb, it's, it's and it's always a document. It's something brutally material in this moment. He looks at the parchment, and he doesn't see a parchment. He sees a constellation of the remains of variously animated things. Sheep, wax. He sees bee product. Think of the bee labor that goes into producing the wax. And so, if you like, it's a quasi-ecological moment in terms of the description that he maps. It's, it's, I mean, it's an ecological description of a piece of parchment uh, in, in sort of in, in minute form. And I'm interested in sort of adding that to uh, as a sort of tariff on pastoral. So I'm, I'm, I'm interested in the way in which sheep serve as a point of contact between two radically opposed uh, genres 
um, and uh, well, not radically opposed, but um, to, to sort of parallel genres, utopia and pastoral. Well, I just wanted to, to is, is Rome's point actually, is that part of your argument? Because I was fascinated with that, with the idea that, that he would see sheep and not riding. Yeah. So, and your, and your answer well, certainly makes yeah. sense well, that there no, were various kinds right. of literacy yeah, and so forth. But, it, but, it, but if he, what he sees is, 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 is not the writing, then that becomes, in a way, an even, that helps your argument, I yeah. think, it seems well, to me, to make, it, is, to make that explicit, uh, that he doesn't see yeah. the writing, he sees the effects of this strange thing that's written on it. It's like going to, uh, to, to Hong Kong and seeing s signs, but what you see, if you don't know Chinese, is you see color and shape. You don't right. see the, significa the signification that... And the magical power of that <clears throat> to right. punish, well, which is what right. he gets back yeah. to, which yeah. goes but back to, to that punishment of the innocent. Right. I mean, there becomes an equivalent, a set of equivalencies are mounted in this moment, whereby violence, sort of the, the lamentable thing is the this is the skin of a dead lamb, and then the other lamentable thing is that it's the skin of an innocent lamb, which makes it uh, the passion. And then it becomes the, uh, that's equated with Jack's own experience of the hands of parchment. There are a series of equivalents being built as he builds an alternate uh, metaphor or figure out of this uh, sort of, of this piece of parchment, uh, and that is uh, and that articulates what parchment feels like to Jack. It's a, it's I mean, precisely that. So yes, that, thank you. That so is it really a, is it a refusal of language then, with all of the with the with the emphasis on scriveners and lawyers? I mean, is it really explicitly a refusal of language and well, being jacks, able to see the object, the, the to jacks, see the animal? Right. Um, yeah, okay, I, I see where this is coming from. The, um, the, is it a refusal of language? Um, it could be a refusal, in the way the, the play appears to, uh, in, the way the, in, in, in the way it plays out, it's a refusal of writing. Right. I right. Mean, that's what I meant. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. But um, it's it depends how you understand what writing is. Uh, it's a refusal of one form of writing. But it's for me the record of alternate forms of writing um, that um, uh, are traces of which remain in, in uh, the archive uh, that um, Shakespeare and Nash were reading. Uh, I believe that's much, but, um, the um, I think Dan, but, um, the um, uh, and Hall, whose overall whose who's treatment of the rebels are, is a bit more sympathetic than you find it in the Did you want to? I guess maybe you've addressed it. I just it just struck me that the last half of the sentence was getting left out. That it was the sentence was being treated like you know, isn't it? You know, sort of something strange and awful about this piece of parchment undoing a lamb, where it's about it undoing me. Yeah. And the yeah. then in the second part also about the wax, the the loss to the animal and the role of the animals is he's doing almost what Moore does with his voracious. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, they are standing, as you said, as metaphors, as um, synecdoche well, for the, the power yeah. of contract for the um, commercial relations and the 
contractual documents that give them legal force to undo a guy like Jack Hay. I mean, I think Gary should help him calls them a dummy subject. In other words, they create a, uh, a space where it becomes possible to, um, for Cullum and Morton to um, understand um, well, there are two things. I mean, uh, it becomes a it becomes a it becomes a figure that makes human suffering available, seeable for carbon water. I don't think we should be. I mean, I, I, mean, I don't think that. I mean, I think given what what Moore's writing, uh, that I mean, there's I mean, there's no there's no scandal here that he's not recovering animal agency. He's yeah. not interested in sheep. Um, well, he is interested in sheep, but only in terms of their use value. Uh, I mean, Utopia essentially. Thomas More is a well-used sheep, um, and um, but the, um, and the other thing is that rhetorically, Hephaestus um, is turning a, uh, turning a dialogue into a monologue. Uh, it's a conversational gambit to to shut someone up. Um, so, but other uh, sort of we, we're, we're very two Henry Six focused. Right. Maybe um, before we run out of time, are there other questions? Where I can just ask a broad question, which is whether you, you touch a little bit at the very end with the exclusion of the ideas of nature and environment and a little bit at the beginning, but is there anything else you'd be willing to say about what you think the work of eco-criticism has to do with the project of ecological protection? Um, I think that, I hate pronouncing it quite that way. Um, I think that, um, I mean, the honest answer is I don't know. But what I expect, in other words, I think that uh, one of the things that the humanities is faced with is, uh, on the one hand, its apparent irrelevance uh, on an Anglo-American campus. Uh, what I'd say is that the, 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 the sort of the guiding frame uh, for me uh, in thinking about the journal, I sort of began by trying to think about sort of what is the, the expertise of the literary critic. What do you bring to the table? Um, and uh, for a, a long time, I tried. I pretended I was a sociologist. Um, and one of the things that trying to take on ecology as uh, as a metaphorical, uh, sorry, as a, as a as a writing practice, as a, as a, as a, as a description that 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 aspires to no reduction, um, is I found myself uh, returned to uh, the oldest inhuman technology. Uh, language uh, as, a, uh, as, a, as, a, as a tool for um, implanting memories and uh, in, in persons uh, externally so that they appear to uh, arise internally um, and to uh, rhetoric as a, as, a, as a mode of forensic persuasion uh, for creating memories in collectives, in other words, ideology. So I'd say that, um, in, that um, uh, for me, uh, if if you know Bruno Latour's We Have Never Been Modern, and you, you sort of think about the figure of the Parliament of Things as some kind of putative uh, radical democratic assembly uh, in which persons um, serve as uh, prosthetic mouthpieces for things. Uh, the ozone layer is the privileged example in this because it's so balkanized that, that, as we all know, it's very hard to actually say anything about the ozone layer that anyone will agree to. So in other words, uh, in that Parliament, it's very easy to imagine what an economist, a meteorologist, um, a um, sort of anyone who's a scientist has to say their role. It's harder to imagine what a literary critic's role is. But I'd say this: when ethologists uh, talk about how you model 
um, animals or how you model the phenomenon. Um, the uh, sort of uh, philosopher of science Isabel Stengers ends up uh, trying to think about uh, the story. She ends up, you know, in a completely narrative mode uh, and concerned about the story of. I'm sure you've heard of it, the Three Little Pigs. And she ends up uh, rewriting the story of the Three Little Pigs. In other words, I can't quite remember uh, her exact phrasing, but she says, uh, what, "How did we arrive at a at a at a, at a place where?" Uh, the question posed by the wolf was one of threat. Is this a misconstrual of the, um, the role of the wolf in the story? What did the wolf want? Uh, what I'd argue is that, that sort of some of the expertise that the literary critics bring to, including you know, the telephone rings in this department of things. You know, <laughs> we need someone from English. Um, what are we going to say? Uh, oh, yes, the ozone there is very important. I've read all your books. Um, no, what we're going to be able to talk about is various ways of modeling um, um, phenomena. Uh, the argument would be that, uh, uh, if you like, forms are, uh, that, that when, a, when, a, when, a, when, a, when an object enters the world, it seeds both literal and metaphorical use values. Those metaphorical use values produce rhetorical forms and they're allied to genres, and the repetition of those routines the repetition of the figure working in the same way, the repetition of the genre, actually constitutes the world in a feedback loop so that representations end up producing worlds. Um, so if you then embark on an archival politics, like Jack Kane, where you try to re-engineer those figures in a very small way, you're actually making different worlds thinkable. I mean, if, you, if you're willing to agree and to be content with the idea that what ecology gives us is a sense that we have to be happy with mediation, that there is only mediation. It doesn't make sense to talk about being in the world without mediation. That's our role, as I see it. Um, and, um, you know, and I think, you know, frankly, and I'm, I'm glad you're going to hear from him, but I think that uh, that's essentially uh, my reading of, of um, well, I you know, disagree with him on some points of what Timothy Norton wrote to the table. Anything else here? Questions? All right, thank you. Thank you very much. The tag team work on Cave really helped that read. <laughs> so there's food in the back. Please stay and let's have some more conversations about all these things. <laughs>